Hi, this is Michael Snydell, the host of Intermission. I just want to take a moment before this episode starts to explain why this episode is out a week later than I planned. I mentioned this on my personal Twitter, but after discussing with my editor and today's guest, Roxana Haddadi, we decided that it was important to hold it for a week in order to not take any space from Black Lives Matter, the tragedies that are being protested, and the various groups that were bravely demonstrating against institutional and state violence across the country. It should be noted that Roxana and I recorded this podcast before the initial protests in Minnesota, so they don't come up in any fashion. But that does not change we felt that these events should be recognized. As such, there are many ongoing efforts to help those affected, whether through petitions, donations, participating in protests, or just becoming educated about the issues. But it can be a little intimidating. One great resource continues to be blacklivesmatters.card.co, which includes a vast number of websites and funds who need help during this time, that is Black Lives Matters with an S dot C-A-R-R-D dot C-O. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to Intermission. This is episode five, and I am here today with uh, Roxana Haddadi to talk about Andrew Dominic's uh, Killing Them Softly uh, from 2012. Um, Roxana, would you like to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. Uh, my name is Roxana Haddadi. You nailed the pronunciation, so excellent job there. Um, and Low bar. I write about, <laughs> yeah, no, you're good. Uh, I don't know. I write about, you know, pop culture and movies and feminism and class and capitalism and all that stuff for Pajiba and uh, every so often the AV Club and Roger Ebert and Brightwall Dark Room and a couple of other places. But um, so, yeah, so I feel like Killing Them Softly is an excellent movie for us to talk about right now in our extremely bleak times. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting movie. But right before we get into that, I'm going to do a quick plug of our sponsor, which is uh, Mubi, which is the streaming cinema. And um, Mubi kind of has a new announcement in the sense that it used to be 30 films, 30 days. And all of them were curated. And now Mubi has gotten even better uh, as they've introduced the library, which now not only includes films that have recently expired, but a number of different collections that Mubi has had um, over over the years and over the past months. Um, But the movie of the day is called Around the World When You Were My Age from uh, director Aya Koretsky. And it's a Portuguese film that is described uh, thus. At 30, Jiro embarked into a year-long trip taking in the Soviet Union, North Africa, Europe, and the United States. Nearly half a century later, his daughter makes use of various memorabilia to take a step back in time and explore how such adventures have shaped the man's take on the modern world. And uh, if you would like to try a trial of movie and potentially watch around the world when you were my age and not only 30 other films, but also their expansive library, uh, you can go to uh, movie.com slash film stage. 
And now we can uh, get on with the main review at hand. So, Roxana, when I came to you and you were one of the people who I wanted to have on this podcast um, early on to, you know, kind of talk at length about a movie, the the first thing that you suggested was Andrew Dominic's uh, Killing Them Softly, which is um, for a little bit of uh, a little bit of background. This was his follow up to the assassination of Jesse James. And um, I, w- I wouldn't say. Uh, all right. I guess I would use the word polarizing <laughs> for how this movie was received. Oh, 100% polarized. <laughs> I really wanted to know how you're going to get into that. <laughs> But I think I think it's had maybe not a rehabilitation in the last couple years, but I think that people have started examining some of the ways they were talking about this. Like, Roxanne, I'm I'm curious, why did you pick this film? Why did you want to talk about it today? I picked this film, I think. Because of the reason you said, I think it's been reassessed more in recent years. I think, and this might be, I mean, this whole conversation is going to be sort of bleak, so I kind of can't, you know, I can't like sugarcoat it. But I feel like the movie was incredibly bleak for the time when it was released, which was after Obama's first term. And I think we were still a little bit hopeful As a country then, it came out in 2012, but it very much is an assessment of that sort of hope and sort of a negative critical assessment. So I think at the time, it very much subverted what people's expectations were and what people were feeling. I think now that we're on the other side of Trump's, hopefully first and only, but who knows, on the other side of Trump's first term, I think there is some curiosity about what this movie was trying to tell us back then and how it might link with what we're living through now. But I actually did not even see this movie until last year. It has been one of my boyfriend's favorites and he kept being like, let's watch it. And I was like, "Ah, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Sometimes I'm just weird. And I say no to things because I love Brad Pitt. I loved assassination of Jesse James. And for some reason I kept hedging on it. And then after we finally watched it, I think I just sat there like stunned for a couple of minutes afterward because I felt like it so clearly distilled a lot of my own frustrations. So then when it popped back on Netflix, I think a couple months ago, since then, I've basically been like telling everybody, like, "Hey, have you like have you watched Killing Them Softly yet?" And then we did a series over at Pajiba about the best movies of the 2010s, and like we voted or whatever. And Mad Max Fury Road was our number one. But I wrote an essay just as part of the series about how I feel like Killing Them Softly captured our generational frustration better than any movie that I've seen in a long time. And I felt like it distilled a lot of our like post 2008 recession resentment. And so I think it's one of these movies that's sort of like hell or high water or sorry to bother you, or even Ingrid goes West is looking at our idea of the American dream and how flawed that feels under our current circumstances. I'm I'm kind of curious. Did you receive any resistance when you suggested this film, or when you first uh, pitched this essay as a possibility? 
No, I didn't. Because I think the people at Pajaiba who have seen it, I think it's one of those movies where it's very difficult to say that you like it. You know what I mean? But I think once you see it, if you're, if you feel invested in that message, which is that the American dream is impossible. And that as Brad Pitt says himself in the final speech, like this country is a business. I think if you are on board with that idea, then I think you can understand how this movie captures a lot of those dissatisfied feelings. So, I mean, it certainly wasn't a movie that popped up on like anybody else's ballot. I think it was me and maybe Peter Nava, who also writes for Pajiba, whose ballot it was on. Um, but I think it's one of those movies that we all sort of respected for what it was doing. But I think that it's only with that distance that people have started feeling that way because you're right. Like when it came out, it flopped, right? Like, I don't think it made very much money. And I remember that the critical reaction was very negative from a lot of corners. Like, I think a lot of people were like, Oh, what are the politics of this movie? Like, I don't know how much this conversation of like the American dream is failing was very supported in 2012. Like, I think people were still hoping that things were going to get better. And so I think to have this movie that ends with, you know, Obama becoming our candidate in 08 and Brad Pitt's character mocking that. Like, I don't know if people were very interested in that messaging back then. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's an interesting question. I, while you were saying that I, I briefly wanted to Google cause I was curious when uh, the big short came out. Cause I think that Adam mm-hmm. McKay's political films uh, in particular are kind of a, um, are kind of a bad version of this certain type of political film. And, and, you know, I think you're right. I mean, looking through uh, your essay that you've been speaking of, you already mentioned Hell Hell or High Water, but then you mentioned Sorry to Bother You, Winter's Bone, Green Room, uh, Widows, Ingrid Goes West, and uh, The Farewell. And, And I think it is interesting to point out that you didn't do many crime films here. And there is, mm-hmm. it's kind of weird that I had actually, there's two things I hadn't had forgotten on the second watch. One is that Dominic is an Australian filmmaker, which uh, in mm-hmm. the same way of something like, um, well, in, in particular, Hell or High Water, you pointed out, um, that is also a, um, yeah. So it was David McKenzie, uh, the Australian director um, is also, you know, a, a maybe not a, a foreigner, but a non-American director looking at that American dream. And I think what's interesting about your descriptions is that you didn't bring it to a lot of uh, a lot of crime films. A- mm-hmm. And, you know, this is I, I didn't say it earlier, but this is actually based on uh, George V. Higgins novel uh, Coogan's Trade, for, or, excuse me, Kogan's Trade from 1974, which um, I didn't know this until uh, today is actually the follow up novel from the writer who wrote uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle. Mm-hmm. So it it is very interesting to know that this falls into a certain lineage and of almost like rambling crime films. Um, and I guess what specifically I, I want to point out there in terms of a, the second thing that I didn't remember is for some reason, I thought this movie was about a two and a half hours <laughs> and it's in <laughs> fact 
an hour and 37 minutes. Yeah, it's actually very tight. Yeah. Yes. It's very tight, but it has that rambling. That's a perfect adjective for it. I think it has that sort of almost at times bumbling quality where you're like, these criminals are really bad at being criminals. <laughs> like they're not good at this. I mean, Ben Mendelssohn's character and Scoot McNary's character, it's like, they're, you know, like sort of like ex cons and <laughs> they're, you know, their relationship with drugs isn't great. And they are very much just sort of like somehow bumbling into scheme after scheme and getting away with it. And so I feel like there very much is a little bit of a sort of listless, like, where are we going here quality. And honestly, that subverts, I think, the mafia organized crime genre because these people aren't, like, good at this for the most part. Like, for the most part, they suck at this and they're making terrible mistakes and they're somehow getting away with it. And I think we've become, as a genre, a little bit more accustomed to, like, people actually doing this successfully, you know, like Marty Scorsese, bless him. Like most of the time his organized crime, people know what they're doing and they're doing it well. And I think we sort of become accustomed to that conversation. And so killing them softly does not put any sort of like romanticized veneer on this, right? There's no custom, there's no ritual, there's none of that. And I don't think Scorsese romanticizes this, but I think a lot of the times he's more interested in like the patterns and rhythms of those like subcultures. Killing them softly isn't interested in that. It's really interested in telling you like this is about money and this is about death. And so when Brad Pitt kills somebody, it's not because he like knows them or cares about them or whatever. It's a job. So I think In that way, it is sort of strange because it has these long segments with Mendelssohn and Scoot, and you kind of get – there's that one sequence where Mendelssohn is clearly high, and you get his weird, fuzzy, blurred perspective. So the movie takes the time to show you those things, and it also takes the time to show you the relentlessness and ruthlessness of Brad Pitt's assassin character. And so I think – you're sort of expecting a movie like that to be like two and a half hours to be like a Scorsese sort of length, but no, it's like a tight, barely 100 minutes, which also contracts contrasts with assassination of Jesse James, which is so long and I love it, but it's so long and it tells you like every aspect of what these people were doing and how they were robbing the trains and their outlaw lifestyle and what the media thought of them and their intergroup dynamics and all that stuff. And at a certain point, like killing them softly, like shucks off all of that. Like it's not really interested in the relationships. It's interested in the transaction of the relationship. And what does that tell you on a very specific level about America on a broader level? But what else stuck out to you from your rewatch? So you had watched it before. What was, do you remember what you thought of it before and what you thought of it now? Like what they, what you saw similarly or maybe didn't see similarly? I think that, I think that transaction, transactional quality is actually a great point. And it's interesting you mentioned Marty, because I almost think that this film begins where the Irishman almost ends. The point at Mm -hmm. which the Irishman points out all of, you know, those traditions and customs you were you were pointing out to be totally false and to be built on, you know, these faulty foundations. And I, I think that 
what it was about killing them softly that really came to mind is I started thinking about how much it was a food chain and this idea that you know, the if we're going to go specifically the food chain metaphor, you never see, you know, the lions, for instance. They're these unseen corporate interests. It wasn't actually until I read Wiki that it was supposed to be implied to me that it was actually the mob because there's such mm. an unseen scope of almost like this crime cycle that's just happening just completely out of reach. Like, like it could have been, you know, this like a uh, maniacal board of, <laughs> of men who are, you know, uh, rubbing their hands together, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, you know, these super villains and everything is about messages and everything is about this idea that, Oh, what I heard on the street, what I heard at this level. And those are all supposed to like, give you a sense that uh, someone like Jackie, for instance, is relatable. But Jackie isn't relatable. He's still that mid-level. Like, he really doesn't give a shit about the Frankie and Russells of the world. Like, those guys are scavengers. Like, they were never meant to make their way up the food chain. Like, even when Johnny, uh, Vincent Caritola's character, you know, gives Scoot McNary a uh, the Frankie character, this job, it, it's not like it's it's the beginning of a career, as you're saying, in, in the same way as something like Goodfellas or any uh, most of the Scorsese gangster films. I, I don't want to quite box it in that way, but right. that's what really stuck to me. This or st- struck me this time. And the other thing is, I I really. So one is that the speeches didn't bother me as much this time, and I think they definitely felt distracting last time. And I think it's for kind of that exact reason you implied, which is that, like, other than the intro of this film, people are nearly always talking, whether it's something on the radio, whether it's music, whether it's those speeches, whether it's just these rambling conversations, you know, about memories being in a dog shit filled car or, you know, about Gandolfini's bizarre tangents. Like there is rarely a point where this movie lets up or does any of that kind of sprawling quiet of something like assassination of Jesse James, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something that was, I just didn't realize how, how dirty and to the point this movie was. Um, and I think that made me just kind of slide through any of the, the ways that the poll quotes intersect in, in in at times pretty obvious ways. Like I I have to admit there were a few points where they timed it in a way where I'm like, where I cringed a little bit. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. couldn't just make it a little more indirect. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think it doesn't fuck around, which also means that there's not a lot of obfuscation happening. Right. I mean, you very much, you know, the players when the movie begins, right. It's like guy runs a mafia poker game. Other guy is trying to rip him off. And I think a lot of the movie also is playing with this idea of your reputation 
And that's something that we saw with the assassination of Jesse James. Like in that movie, Jesse James is almost obsessed with what people are saying about him and thinking about him and what does his crew think and how do their actions reflect on him. And there's a lot of that sort of you are your actions and you're also how people perceive your actions. You can't divorce yourself from how other people view you. And I thought Killing Them Softly does that very subtly, but purposefully throughout. And I think it's both subtle in that you don't really think, at least I did not expect that from sort of an organized crime film. But to your point, it also can get really direct and sometimes clunkily so in the dialogue. But you're dealing with somebody who ripped off his own poker game, right? Ripped off his own <laughs> card game. So sure. he's ruined He's ruined his reputation in that way. People never expect him to be honest again, right? You're dealing with the mafia itself, who, as you said, like we never see the highest levels of them. Like their surrogate, the person who most clearly represents them, is the Richard Jenkins character, who we never get a name. You never get a name for him. He's just known as the driver. He takes meetings in his car. Like you're aware he's a suit. Like you're aware of the level of power he has or whatever. But at the same time, it's like he's representing an entirely faceless organization. And then you have like the cons who are Mendelssohn's and McNary's characters. Like they're very much judged by their previous crimes. And then you also have somebody like the James Gandolfini character the assassin Mickey, who Brad Pitt had one idea of, right? Like Brad Pitt recommends that the mob hire Mickey, even though his price is a little bit higher because he remembers the Mickey of before who was like a great assassin. And then when they meet again, after years apart, like Gandolfini's Mickey is a fucking mess, right? He's like drinking constantly at lunch. He's hiring prostitutes and then shoving them around. Like he is making a mess of a job. And now his reputation is not what it once was. So I feel like on top of all the like organized crime stuff and the commentary on capitalism stuff, you also have this idea of like you can't really outrace the promises you've made through your own actions and your own choices. And I think that's why the ending, at least for me, hits even more hard because it's like Brad Pitt almost seems to be – a representation of an old way of thinking. Like he expects the mob and whoever to maintain the promises that they made for him. So then when Richard Jenkins tries to dick him over and double cross him and pay him less, it's like that real fuck you pay me energy of like, you promised me something and this is the way that things used to go. And now you're trying to double cross me on that because it looks better for your bottom line. So I also think there's this tension of like, how do we sell ourselves for money? <laughs> I mean, and what kind of, what do you expect from that transaction? Like, what do you expect for your own morale or your own willpower or your own conscience, right? I mean, I think when Brad Pitt realizes they're trying to shortchange him, it's like, you're paying thousands of dollars for me murder someone. We saw how dark that is, right? Like the murders aren't glamorous. They're people being murdered outside of their apartments and shit. Like they're very bleak. So to then shortchange someone for that, it's like, who the hell do you think you are? <laughs> so I think for me, that's like 
that's why it hits so hard because I think it's doing more than sort of an organized crime movie. And I think that's why I, I link it with something like Hell or High Water or Ingrid Goes West. It's like to me, Hell or High Water is more of a commentary on the modern state of American late stage capitalism than it is just a Western or like Ingrid goes West is more about like our current obsession with social media and how we present ourselves through those means. than it is just sort of like a stalker female story. So I think they're all sort of criticisms of our modern way of living. And what is it about all of those shortcomings that make the American dream seem so unattainable you know as as uh jackie says like he talks about not wanting to know people not wanting to have to be in a position where you know someone would beg for their life or you know like he as he says no touchy feely uh i I don't like the touchy feely that makes it more you know he doesn't quite say annoying but that's certainly like it's an irritation more more than even a repression, which I, which I find kind of fascinating because, you know, the ways that he chooses to kill people, like for instance, the way he kills Johnny is so inefficient. Like he's (laughs) across the street with a shotgun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For, for someone who's supposed to, you know, do a hit, I, I, I mean, the Ray Liotta one is fine, but I was still like, I don't think you need to put 10 bullets into this guy <laughs> after you shoot him in the head. But, uh, you know, that's that's fine. But just like it, it, I do find it, it, it fascinating, again, what you're saying. I, I mean, that the, the the weird conflicts between that old and new way it's a lot more intangible than when you think of more uh, more recent manifestations. It, you know, uh, it, you know, even going to something like Wolf of Wall Street, which, which like very much is is about what happens when people who just totally go around the system, um, how they can succeed. And I think what is interesting about this is again that facelessness is often concrete in a way like I, I I have to admit that about 30 to 40 minutes after they kept using the word the name Dylan I didn't realize Dylan was Sam Shepard's character who was in <laughs> one, one scene, scene of the movie <laughs> <laughs> it's like a very split second glimpse right Right. It's again, it's this like, it's so much about these like outsized personas. And then when you see them, you're like, this guy, like we're talking (laughs) about this guy, you know? And that's so clear with Gandolfini's character because like Brad Pitt almost speaks about him in like hushed tones. Like Jackie Cogan clearly like respects this person. He convinces Richard Jenkins's character to like bring him in from out of state to spend money on getting him here. Like you really have this idea and it's also Gandolfini, right? So he also came with all the Sopranos expectations and then for him to arrive and just to be such a run of the mill asshole (laughs) really (laughs) does deflate your expectations. The movie makes you pay attention. And like you said, certain things aren't going to click until maybe 10 minutes or 15 minutes after they hit. But I, I liked that because it made me feel like the movie wasn't holding my hand and it was really inserting you into that world and making you do the work of catching up with who characters were 
and what their motivations were. But I, I do, I do see your point. No, I mean, I don't, for what it's worth, I don't think that's a a bad thing at at all. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, I, I think that it's very interesting for, um, you know, it's unconventional in, in the sense that as much as this movie foregrounds so much of its political commentary, like these characters don't really fall into archetypes. You know, like mm-hmm. even Jackie, for instance, you keep expecting he's going to live by a code or, you know, he's going to be efficient or, you know, that he's going to be, you know, a slightly more human version of like Anton Sugar from No Country for Old Men or, or something. But it's he's not that. Like, he's just as as scuzzy as kind of the other men. Like, he's an asshole to Jenkins. You know, he smokes cigarettes in his car. He, mm-hmm. he like, is consistently recommending things that don't go the way that he suspected. And even, like, Frankie and Russell, like... One of the first things Russell says is he he makes a joke about, um, you know, fucking a dog. <laughs> like, like, these <laughs> like, are... they're gross. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, it's like they're not here in, like, these tailored suits. They don't look nice. And even with Jenkins, it's like he's just an average middle manager, right? (laughs) It's very stripped of any sort of glamour, even the card game itself, which is what they hit. And like, they make away with all this money. It's just like a shitty, right. Isn't it like in the back of his bar or like in the back of his restaurant again, like nothing about it is glamorous. So I think in a lot of ways, it also is communicating to you, at least I thought a sort of pitiful, pathetic quality. (laughs) to this continued enterprise. Like it doesn't make organized crime look cool in any way. It just looks like a bunch of men playing around at what they thought would be cool. Yeah. I I think that's, I think that's interesting too in the, in the almost way that it seems to be constantly aware of that, like going back and forth between, you know, for for instance, like Marky's place in this, where everybody knows that he, you know, uh, you know, jacked another card game, but they're just waiting for the moment, like, and over and over they're going back and forth, like, oh, you want me to talk to him? How much do you want me to talk to him? Like, so many of these things seem like there is such a history to these <laughs> transactions, but it's it's not like anything... You know, it's almost like a write-off in terms of the mob. Like, it's such, as you're saying, like, it's it's tough guys playing tough guys. But it's then it's also people like, you know, um, Frankie and Russell and even Marky, like, begging for their lives. Like, you hear Frankie say, like, "Eh, they're all nice guys. He he didn't mean it. Like, that, Mm -hmm. it's a really, it's a really, um... It's a really a, emotional scene. I, I sometimes forget how good Scoot McNary is because he's so often put in these character roles. Um, and he's just uh, he's so good and just kind of like he just like rings himself out. <laughs> he's such, an, mm-hmm. such a draining, yeah. a, a drained human <laughs> by the end yeah. of his performances. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry. My point was, though, like it, that back and forth between these guys you know, this guy has a business. This guy has a bar. These guys are just from around the corner. Like, 
or or even like Brad Pitt walking past a you know a shootout on on a block, like so much of this is obvious and like um and, and not in the sense of blunt, but it's obvious to their worldviews to the point where someone has a gun in their face or they, you know, take a punch in the gut and accidentally throw up on the guy beating him up. Like it's, I, I, it is that pathetic quality, but I think it's, it's so important that it kind of goes back and forth between those, but not exactly in the way you expect. I I think it's uncompromising in showing you that this world doesn't really have a lot of opportunities otherwise for these guys. I think that that in and of itself is sort of a sympathetic quality for Mendelssohn's and Scoot's characters. And I think Scoot always, most of the time, a lot of the time is playing a character who is just that close to like giving up on himself. He, he very much feels like a dude who is just this close to just like, you know, walking away from his own reality and his own life. And I feel like there's a lot of that, there's a lot of that lost quality of him in this movie. And I remember watching it the first time and thinking like, man, like maybe, like maybe he'll get out, right? Like he's sort of pathetic, (laughs) like he's sort of harmless, like it'll be fine. And then the movie doesn't really allow for that sort of sympathy. It, it really shows you, like you said, sort of the ruthlessness of this. Like, that beating of Ray Liotta's character is rough, right? It is rough to sit through. It is just, it is awful, and it is ugly and brutal, and it very much felt to me like what a fight probably in the real world really would be like, where it just keeps going on too long. And then, yeah, of course, the other guy throws up because it's gross. Like, it very much, the movie, I feel like, is very uncompromising in showing you, like, the squeamish grossness. And like you said, like, Brad Pitt is shooting somebody from across a parking lot for some reason, like, ten times, drawing attention to himself. Like, there's not a lot of finesse or grace I think. And I think because there isn't a lot of finesse or grace, it kind of makes you think like, well, what's the higher, what's the end game here, right? Like what's the higher purpose? But then because the corporation, the organized crime, the mafia, the mob, because you never really get a face for them, I think it keeps you in the dark as to what their ambitions are and what their end game is. And so then the activities of like the lower level people, like you said, like Jenkins as the middle manager, even Brad Pitt as somebody who is respected, but that they're still trying to like underpay for his services. (laughs) I think in a lot of ways, like it keeps your perspective on the people who are like the laborers in this ecosystem and in this economy and not to make it, well, whatever. I don't, I was going to say not to make it too political, but like screw it, whatever. I think it shows like there's a lot of desperation going around. Like, Desperation that makes people do stupid things, like rip off a mafia card game, and desperation that makes people do things that are morally pretty fucked up, like being an assassin. So I think it very much is also a commentary on like labor and what we're willing to do and what we get pushed to do that I think is sort of uncomfortable for people. Like I was reading a few reviews that came out when the movie came out, and it was funny how 
a few of them would just be like, I guess this movie is political with almost like a shrug emoji. And I'm like, of course it's political. Like everything's political. Like, how do you not like, how can you not listen to Brad Pitt's, spe- Brad Pitt's speech at the end? And like, not think it's political. You know what I mean? So it's very interesting. I feel like to go back to some of those older views and see what people thought this movie was or was not about. Well, to speak directly to that, you know, we were talking a little bit about how perceptions have changed. Uh, or you were asking me how I reacted to this film differently. Um, I mean, what was your interpretation then of the of the constant uh, Bush and then finally the Obama speech? As I was saying, it's so much texture for me that I, 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 I'm not sure what to even make the interpretation of perhaps because I've just become so jaded with politics or like Obama's presidency even now has such a a strange retroactive tint. Yeah. So like, I'm just curious, what, what do you make of those speeches now? Did you, did you take them kind of as is? I mean, I think having the right. And one thing we haven't talked about is that like, there is this constant backdrop of the election happening. And so you have like Bush speeches in the background and then you constantly hear snatches of like Obama speeches, which were very much the time about like hope and a second chance and coming together and stuff like that. And for me, what I thought the point of that was, was to analyze, does anything change? And I know that's a very loaded question, especially right now. But I I do think, though, that in that context, the movie is making the point that, like, not much does change on the ground for these sort of people, for a certain segment of working class Americans and for a certain kind of laborer, right? I mean, like, the entire point, I think, of incorporating those moments are to show that like as much as we are subject to outside forces or whatever, we're ultimately still the people who make choices for ourselves and who assume certain responsibilities and who do certain things. So it's very interesting to me at the end when it's Jenkins character who seems more on board with the possibility of hope and change, (laughs) somebody who works for the mob and who probably has a pretty secure position, middle management position within the mob, like he seems more willing to go on this journey of hope and change and to buy into that ideology. And then I think you have somebody like Jackie, who probably isn't swayed by any of that, who is very much consumed with his own survival, who doesn't buy into any of it. And so I think it's really about like, what stories do we tell ourselves about America? And then as an individual, where do you fit within that? And how do your efforts fail at that? Because I think Jackie is seeing his efforts fail. Like he did his job. He had a contract. He fulfilled it. And then when it comes down to it, he still has somebody in his face who he's met with time after time trying to swindle him out of something he was promised. And that's supposed to be a good relationship, right? Like he's supposed to be a good employee. So I think it's about this sense of like, we can speak very broadly about hope and change and wanting to make things 
better. But like, is that possible in a country that is set up like this? For me, it hits harder than something like The Big Short, which I actually like. Like, I don't really mind McKay's movies. Like, I think critical conversation around him has certainly shifted. But I think that he, I think that he has his own points, and a lot of times they're a little more jokier than I would like. Like, sometimes I think I, sometimes I think that he simplifies things to a certain degree, which might not be useful, but. At the same time, I do think that The Big Short and this movie and Vice are all sort of telling a similar sort of story, which is that, like, we really desperately want things to be better, but a lot of these systems just play out over and over again, and the same cycles happen over and over again, whether we engage in them or not. Like, at a certain point, your individuality doesn't matter to the broader system. Well, the first point I want to make is I'm realizing, do Frankie and Russell, I watched this hours ago. How can I not remember this? Do Frankie and Russell ever respond to anything about the election? No, I'm thinking I don't think so. no. No. Because, I, and I think that is even more epitomized in the fact that, like, Russell's plan is to <laughs> use the money to buy smack. Wait, no. No, use the money, finish the dog thing, buy smack, right. and that's considered the that's considered the end all. <laughs> like yeah. that's that's right. his goal. <laughs> right. There's right. there's no larger plot or anything. And no, it's a day to day lifestyle. Sure. Like I think it is. I think it is very much speaking to a huge portion of America that lives like that, for whom the election doesn't matter and for whom the president doesn't matter we're seeing a slice of the country who like their everyday actions are not affected by who is president at all and so a lot of it is just background noise and so i think when jackie says i think when jackie admits to him that it's also background noise i think it's setting him in the same area as those characters like richard jenkins's character is comfortable in a way that allows him to be amused by politics. Whereas mm. it's like Jackie and all these other guys who are out here grinding every day. It's like, that's, that's a lofty concern that they don't have time for. I think it's a little bit, see, I, I mean, I think you're being very, very persuasive that the one part that falls apart a little <laughs> bit for me in terms of the metaphors is I'm not quite sure what to make of Jackie, because when you do see a lot of these class based uh, systems and, and, you know, you see it in something like Sorry to Bother You, which which you mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. you see someone who is wildly succeeding, but still hitting the ceiling in, in various ways. And Jackie, you know, he's almost a fuck up from the word go. Like, he's not really mm-hmm. this put upon oppressed person, which I which I find, uh, again, fascinating and might be part of why I have heard specific complaints that, you know, it's both all a metaphor, but doesn't totally fall together is, again, it doesn't align with the usual ideas about 
these, you know, almost, uh, almost like not moral opposites. What am I saying? I I guess class opposites. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't fit that. Like Jackie, again, is not a person who, you know, feels he's in, I I mean, he feels he's entitled to things. Um, but he also hasn't earned it in the way that a lot of other class-based things I'm realizing focus I focus on like almost in like a stack deck way to show mm-hmm. you look how these people are are oppressed um which i guess you know i guess that gives even more credence to what you're saying in the sense that like these are all flawed human beings and the system doesn't care about them whatever their struggles are you know it, it doesn't matter that he had to put in all this work <laughs> because it fell apart he's not going to be given what, what he deserves. Right. And I think it's one of those things too, where it's like, I sort of think, I sort of think that if he had been great at his job, then it wouldn't be the same movie. You know what I mean? Like, I think him being great at his job is a, different movie and so i think that his efficiency might not necessarily be the point i think that like you said his efforts are more the point like the fact that he still did the job is the point like i think it's about doing what you were told to do and still being underserved right because it's one of those things to me where it's like at a certain point you were hired to kill a guy like doesn't Mm -hmm. really matter how you did it (laughs) like nobody really cares how it got done (laughs) like the end game is that somebody quoted you a price and you did the job I think about it a lot that like at the end of the day, all the stupid shit we saw that happened, like we knew how much Gandolfini was a fuck up. Like we saw Sam Shepard as this like iconic legendary character (laughs) for a second who then, you know, like doesn't appear again. Like, I think you are meant to see Jackie Kogan as somebody who is dealing with all these burdens and still delivering and then still getting fucked over. So it's like, I don't know necessarily how the movie would be better served if he was like amazing at it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I think that's a good, it's an interesting thought experiment to think about because to me, it's like that almost seems outside of the point of what they're trying to say. But yeah, but it's, I, you know, but I, I do think it's an interesting point, which is that like, how does this movie play now? Because I, I think that people are more sympathetic to it now because Mm. I think, I think that there are like two trains of thought. I think that a lot of people look back on the Obama years as very perfect and unproblematic. And I think we've romanticized them greatly because the Trump years are so fucking rough And then I also think there's very much the train of thought of looking back on it and at least remembering, like, I graduated into that recession and took a underpaying job and had to struggle for years with that. And I know tons of people right now who are still either underemployed or freelancing or whatever. And there's that constant feeling that our generation is not getting paid what we're worth. So I think to those people, 
maybe that message about like America is a business and it doesn't care about you might slap harder than people who would think, okay, this assassin character basically telling Obama to fuck off is pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely think there are two very distinct readings there and it's sort of interesting to see how much they diverge. Um, I, I, yeah, it, it is strange to, I, I am really curious what the general sentiment is specifically in relation to sympathy for Jackie here, because mm-hmm. Jackie is, is really as scummy as any of the characters in this, mm-hmm. like multiple times he does things that are deeply unlikable. Um, and they are represented in a way that they're not aberrations. They are just something that's part of his personality. The the way he right. acts with the prostitute, the the way that he laughs at Gandolfini's, uh, you know, specifically in that scene as well, that Gandolfini's comment about how someone's going to cut you up. Like there is a clear sociopathic glee that he takes in these things. So I I think you are right that if you did have him be, you know, even more intentionally flat, like I I think you would lose that sense. But I definitely think you're right, though, that I don't think I'd thought about how valuable Frankie and Russell are in expressing that other part that's just completely, um, sorry, unexposed in, in a way. So it, mm-hmm. it, it is interesting then the way, again, to kind of go back to that food chain uh, a metaphor that I made earlier. Like all of these are certain levels um, that they're that they're working in. And at the end of the day, the only people that care about what they're doing on a day-to-day basis is the people right above them. <laughs> like it's... Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something that's interesting too, to your point of like Jackie Kogan is not a good person. Like he absolutely is not a good person, but I don't think anybody here is a good person. So I no. think it's one of those things where it's like our sort of didactic understandings of good versus bad don't really apply. So I think you have to consider something a little bit different, which is like, okay, like if everybody's an asshole, then what makes you more of an asshole than somebody else? And so I think we're very clearly supposed to think that Jackie thinks Gandolfini's character is an asshole, right? And I think it's because it comes down to that labor aspect. It comes down to like Gandolfini sucks at his job now. Right. Like Brad Pitt isn't great at it. Like he's sloppy, he's messy, whatever. But it's not like he's out here like drinking on the job and like hiring prostitutes and like wasting people's time. So it's also very interesting that even in this world where like everybody is sort of screwed up, you still have people judging one another based on productivity which is such a capitalist idea. It's such an idea of that economic (laughs) system, right? I mean, that even somebody like Jackie Kogan who laughs in this prostitute's face when Gandolfini jokes about like killing her or whatever, that even still at the end of the day, I'm like, you know, at least Jackie Kogan did his job though. Like Gandolfini (laughs) didn't even do the job. So it's also very interesting at how it makes, like, at least for me, it interrogates 
what do we judge as worthiness and how do we determine people's value? Like Jackie Cogan clearly thinks that he's valuable enough to be paid what he was promised. And I would tend to agree, but then that's another part of the business model, right? It's another part of like, if I think all of you are bad and all of you are lacking in morality, then I have to think of another way to determine how good quote unquote of a person you are. And we're so used to this sort of like capitalist economic productivity, efficiency thinking that like, we're not left with anything else. I think as another, uh, another thought experiment that kind of leads me to something related to that, this film at some point was apparently two and a half hours long. I'm trying to figure mm-hmm. out whether that's an assemb- assembly cut, whether, you know, that was a legitimate cut. Um, and it should be said that Dominic does have kind of a checkered history with with cuts. I believe there were a dozen different um, edits for uh, the assassination of Jesse James. Um, but either way, like as a thought experiment, I, I am thinking now a little bit that I'm wonder I'm wondering if there was the faceless, you know, goons in that longer cut, because I was thinking I was thinking instead about you're right. This does keep really low to the ground for the most part. And I think if you did start bringing in legitimate institutions, you'd be diluting it a little bit. I think, again, if you lose that certain uh, ground level, almost subterranean (laughs) quality to the, to the film, I think you, I think you lose that point. Like I'm really fascinated. I really want to know the story of what that two and a half hour movie was and whether it had a different, not necessarily shape, but texture. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, like I'm curious, like would we ever see Richard Jenkins going back to his superiors? Because I feel like that could be sort of an interesting thing to see like who these people are. Like everybody in this world has a boss, right? Like even Mendelssohn's and Scoot's characters aren't operating out of their own volition. Like they're leaked that information by squirrel, right? And squirrel basically like sends them to go do it. So it's like everybody here is under the heel of somebody else. So I think it would have been interesting maybe to see Jenkins go back to those superiors and to sort of give us a broader idea of what the chain sort of is. Like you said, it keeps its focus very low to the ground in a way that is sort of like pathetic, but it does make you think like what these people will go to and like the extremes that they'll go to just to like survive. So I I think that again fits into this idea of like, this is very much a movie really about the recession and about like how that impacts people and that sort of like economic disparity and loss and how that shapes and guides our actions. So it's funny. It's like, we keep going back to this. Like I, I do think it's an organized crime movie. I mean, you can't argue that it's not. I just, sometimes I think that it's interests are not actually within organized crime. Like, I don't actually think it cares about telling that story. I just think that Dominic found that like an interesting way to get people (laughs) to watch it (laughs) 
Because I think no, about all the marketing was like, like I think all the marketing was like Brad Pitt and that shotgun, and then people <laughs> saw the movie and it was like Brad Pitt's actually killing people for like maybe five minutes, maybe ten minutes. Otherwise, yes. it's just like you said, those lengthy negotiations in the car with Jenkins's character. Like, so I think I wonder what other fields or industries you could sort of apply this thinking to, but I just think the organized crime world probably gives it a romanticism that we expected. And then to see it so thoroughly subverted is sort of making its own point. Yeah, no, I I think that's totally fair. I, I, I think, I guess what I'm really honing into is that I just think that this movie is energized with an anger that I yes. think even a lot of films at this time didn't have. Like, there was still a certain idealism. I mean, even, like, moving forward to Big Short, like, Big Short in the in the middle, as much as it has, you know, kind of a, a comedic Michael Moore-style lecture, like, it is still very much at the end being like, we can go in, off into the sunset if we change this and if we recognize right. this. And this film, like... To the last second is not that. Rejects that. And it's, it's yeah. just fascinating to me watching this and even being like, you know, maybe it couldn't be exactly transposed to right now. Um, but it is, it's getting at something with a, that I feel like some other things have felt kind of toothless. I think that it's getting at something I think for me, it gets at something that's outside of politics, which is why I think that it inherently is mocking both Bush and Obama. I think it's Hmm. mocking the idea that our modern political system could solve any of this. And I sort of sympathize with that viewpoint. And so (laughs) I think that it, I think that it's poking at the idea that either party has the answers for helping people, like you said, so low to the ground, so subterranean, the kind of people that any functioning society would consider like a lost cause, right? Like assassins and drug fuck ups. Like, I think that it is making a point that like the problems of these people are not what concern those people. There's a huge gap there. And at a certain point, it's like you are living in two different Americas and the political system doesn't really apply because their solutions don't really apply to you. So I think in that way, it's speaking about something larger than Democrats and Republicans. I think it's speaking about like an entire American ideology, Mm. whereas something like McKay's films, I do think are coming from a democratic point of view And I think they're coming at it from this idea of like, if we had just caught this, we could have fixed it. Or like if Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney and all these people just weren't in power, then maybe the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan wouldn't have happened. Like, I think that a lot of the times McKay still sees Democrats as the good guys. And I think... That that sort of, like you said, I think that he adds some like optimism to his films to say, like, if you get politically engaged, like you can solve this, you can be part of the solution. If we come together, like 
we can make things better. And I think you saw this too in the ending of the laundromat Soderbergh's movie, Mm -hmm. um, where you have like Meryl Streep's character shedding off her brown face, which God, I hated that. But then speaking directly to the camera about how like, just get involved and like pay attention to local politics and like, we can make a difference. And there's part of me that feels like in my worst days that all of that is just incredibly naive and it doesn't speak to larger systems of power that make America, America. So I think killing them softly is tapping into some of that. And I can understand how repellent that can seem to people who trust the system and believe that people with good motivations can make a difference. But I just think that the movie is sort of rejecting that. I think it's saying that when you go high enough into how these systems are run we just don't fucking matter. And that is very bleak. <laughs> but but like, yeah. I, I, I am really curious in a way to see the political films from the generations coming up right now. Because they are living in a world where everything seemed to... They were born into this world. It's not even like they presently saw it happening. And it, right. it's almost like they've like been born with this certain burden that they caused in some way. Like it's it's really fascinating to me that I, it's strange that I'm coming to that from Killing Them Softly, which is almost entirely about older generations. But it's nonetheless something that I, I can't help but jump to wonder what these next generations, their version of a political film is going to be. Mm -hmm. I think both, I think both killing them softly and any potential films that are from like the Gen Z perspective. I mean, I think all of these films are sort of asking the question of like, what do we inherit? Right. I mean, like, I think that killing them softly is looking at it from like a, okay, like you're going to vote in this guy who promises hope and change or whatever. But like, what do we inherit from that ideology? And like, what is our point supposed to be within it? Like, how are we supposed to operate within that world? How does it actually change how any of us live and how does it shape us moving forward? And then I think with Gen Z, it's like, they are born into this world that like was already shaped by 9-11, is already shaped by a surveillance state, is already shaped by this current administration and, you know, like all the drama and shortcomings of that. Like I've seen from certain people that I follow online where it's like is growing up right now the closest an American generation has come to growing up in like an authoritarian state. And Mm. it's an interesting question to consider in terms of like, what does that do to art? Cause like for a lot of us, it's like, you know, like our parents' generation said something like all the president's men, which is about like tracking down a problem and solving it and making theoretically the world a better place by bringing people to justice or whatever. But like (laughs) crazy idea. Crazy idea, right? But it's like, I don't know, like, I don't know what movie Gen Z tells about this current time, which is like sort of why I think that like it, like it defies parody and like it defies recreation for me just because like, I don't know what's, I guess I don't know what commentary you can make about right now that 
isn't incredibly upsetting. <laughs> I don't know. And so that's why it's like something like Space Force. Like Space Force hits Netflix tomorrow. I'm like, I don't really want to watch a comedy about no. this like ridiculous <laughs> branch of the military that for some reason we now have like it's too soon it's not funny to me you know yeah i've thought about this a lot in relation to history books and and like you know so much of what we're living through was going to be in history books but my entire life has been like oh this is going to be in history books this is going to be like i'm waiting for Mm -hmm. the moment where just like we hit a lull where it's like you know what this isn't interesting enough for the history books like give me that yeah (laughs) Yeah. but no it's like we lived through we lived through 9-11 the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which are still going on, the economic downturn, the next economic downturn, the Islamic State, and Trump, and all the shit that that has entailed. So yeah, I mean, it's like, it's very weird to think about, like, how that has all shaped who we are right now. (laughs) And so, and that's almost why, like, honestly, that's almost why Killing Them Softly to sometimes to me feels sort of comforting. Because it's like, it's sort of easier to think about the fact that like the promises of hope and change didn't really come to pass or whatever. But it also sort of takes me back to that place where I can be sort of skeptical of that ideology and it hasn't fully morphed into what we have now, which is like such a different tenor and tone. And there's, hope for something that would like completely fundamentally change the nature of this country. And so like, it's just, it's sort of comforting to go back to that space. But like you said, it does also feel very prescient in terms of like what, what the people in power would be more comfortable just saying to our face instead of like saying behind our backs, basically. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so yeah. No, I, I think that it's on. It's on Netflix. <laughs> it's on Netflix. Anybody can watch it. It's on Netflix. <laughs> also, their vision of the world is far mo- more coherent than ours. So that that's yeah. a little that's a little comforting. <laughs> yeah, slightly slightly comforting. I mean, Brad Pitt's still pretty handsome in this movie. You know, if yeah. that's what needs to get you to watch it, he's very handsome. <laughs> and um, and yeah. There you go. I, but you are right. Ben Mendelsohn is very gross. Mendelsohn, who normally is very attractive, is very gross. Yes. Oh, yeah. God. He needs a shower. It just bothers Like, all me. the showers. Every shower. <laughs> every shower available. It's just like he gets the money, too, and then doesn't shower. And I'm like, no. what, what are you doing? You have the money. Oh, I God. know. I, t- I totally agree. I totally agree. But no. Still talking about fucking dogs or whatever dumb joke he's telling in the beginning. So gross. Uh, I think that's a good place to say. Are are there any final thoughts you wanted to talk about, Roxana? No, I mean, I think I, you know, I do think it's one of those movies that I don't want to say it's grueling because I legitimately do enjoy it and how it's built and like the technical aspects and everything. I think for me, just looking back on it, I'm like, where does Dominic go from here? Right. Cause like his career has sort of stalled out, but I think he made two very interesting portraits of like what we prioritize as Americans. And so I'm sort of like, where did you go? Can you come back to us? <laughs> like, where did you, what happened? <laughs> 
what happened? Please come back. Thank you. <laughs> that, that sounded like a plea at a certain point. That stopped yeah. becoming a question. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's the real question is like, do we get a movie about this time from Andrew Dominic in like four years? Maybe. I mean, I'm okay with that. So yeah, it's my, it's my closing, my closing thought. (laughs) Finally, we've kind of mentioned a number of things, but Roxana, is there anything as kind of a, a final bow? Is there anything that you would recommend that you feel falls into this anything you didn't uh get a chance to mention or anything like this or would be you know a thematic companion or somewhere else to go after this um i kind of list some of them in that piece that i wrote and you read them off earlier but i i do think probably widows would be a good choice Mm. because i do think that also speaks to sort of the world of organized crime and the economic downturn and some of the sacrifices we make to change who we are to survive. So I would always suggest widows. I would always suggest sorry to bother you and hell or high water. I think all any sort of movie, I think that tries to tackle the 08 recession and lingering economic effect. I mean, I think it tells you something about where we are as a country right now and what we're still struggling with in a way that maybe, like you said, the big short doesn't. Um, and I think that's worth it. And you know what? I also would say, I, I think really that McKay's The Other Guys almost does it better than The Big Short in yeah. terms of like looking at what we prioritize and honestly, who we trust with our money and how that might be a mistake. <laughs> the last thing I would suggest just in terms of labor is yeah. High Flying Bird by Steven Soderbergh, yes. which is also on Netflix. I think that that movie also has a very poignant analysis of labor in this country and the power that can be exhibited by individual people in the face of like these grand gargantuan, you know, wealthy institutions that might not care about you on an individual level and also like 90 minutes. So, I mean, what are you doing? Just watch it. Can't go wrong. It's it's so entertaining. Yeah. High flying birds. Great. great. Um, and, um, finally to kind of, uh, close us out, um, where can we find you these days, uh, Roxana? And you're welcome to plug any recent pieces. I know you had a few this week. Oh, Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's at Roxana, R-O-X-A-N-A underscore Hadadi, H-A-D-A-D-I. Um, and yeah, I've had some recent stuff hit. If you would like to check out my work on RogerEbert.com, I recently wrote something about revisiting Goodwill Hunting in these times and how its healing message sort of feels more relevant now than ever. Um, and you can find my stuff at Brightwall Dark Room. I wrote recently about Miranair's film The Namesake and sort of my personal relationship with it. You can also find me at Pajiba and the AV Club. So yeah, a lot of different places. And if you followed, that would be cool. You can find me on Twitter at, at Snydell, uh, Letterbox. Um, I, I am thinking I, I will put it out there and please give me feedback about it. I, I would love some ideas for uh, Patreon um, perks that you you all would like. Because um, as it is, uh, we are putting this on Patreon for a couple days and then making it public. 
but um, we've had some people join, so that's that's lovely, and I'm so sorry that you're in our Slack now. Um, and so please let me let me know what even appeals to you about a Patreon, or maybe you hate Patreon and don't want to help, but that's fine. Um, and our next episode of the regular film stage show uh, is You Don't Know Me, which is the documentary about showgirls. And we are having the director on. And I'm extremely excited about that because I've seen showgirls about 25 times. Um, and then our next intermission episode will be uh, Cold Water with uh, Vikram Murthy. Um, um, thank you so much, Roxana, for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciated it. And uh, thank you for listening to my ramblings. You're always welcome back on uh, either show. And um, thank you so much to everyone who stayed and uh, listened to this episode of Intermission.